Anytime you are talking to someone who's intentionally diminishing their importance in the negotiation, they are the most influential person on their side. This first bank robber at the Chase Bank, he kept saying, like, you know, there's seven guys with me. And these guys are dangerous. They're from all over the world. And I'm scared of them. Like, I don't know what they're going to do to me. This is a great tactic of uh, business negotiators blaming a guy that's not in the room. So uh, traveling all, all over the world sounded cool. Secret Service wasn't hiring, but the FBI was at the time. I didn't know the difference. You know, the federal alphabet, FBI, CIA, DEA, I didn't know any of that. Uh, joined the FBI, ended up in New York City. Terrorist Task Force actually was on a SWAT team with the FBI when I was at Pittsburgh and re-injured my knee. And we had hostage negotiators. You know, what do they do? It does, that doesn't look hard. How hard could it be talking to people? And so I shifted to hostage negotiation and it was great. And it was much more to it than met the eye. And one thing led to another, and I'm sitting here in Las Vegas talking to you on a, <laughs> on your podcast. You mentioned a couple things, Chris. You mentioned SWAT, uh, law enforcement, obviously, and television. And when I think about a hostage situation, and I think our, a lot of our listeners and viewers are probably picturing this too, it's how it's depicted on either television or in the movies. And of course, the stereotype is that the cops or the SWAT or FBI go right. in and they buy time until the snipers are in position. And yeah. then the sniper takes out the bad guy and saves all the hostages in the bank. Now, after reading your book, uh, Never Split the Difference, it's clear that that isn't the actual strategy going into the negotiation. And of course, it's usually not or almost never the way it plays out. I'm curious, so is there a playbook for entering a hostage or, or kidnapping situation, negotiations, or how does that work going into it? Well, uh, a hostage negotiator is the ultimate cold calling salesman. You know, what's a cold calling salesman? He's calling you on the phone. You don't particularly want to talk to him and you probably don't want what he's, what he's selling. And I, you know, I got to call into a bank and they're not looking forward to talking to me and they don't want what I'm selling. We can't force them into it, though. That's that's like, do you do you use lawyers to make all your deals? Well, no, that wouldn't really work. You know, on TV, if the negotiators talk to them till they shoot them, if that happened in real life, as soon as we showed up, they'd start throwing bodies out the front door. The reality of it is you show up and you actually you, you use your tone of voice to calm people down and you find out what's bugging them, as strange as that sounds. And if you can talk them through it, there's a really good chance they'll change their behavior and see that maybe what they're doing at the moment was the smartest move, was not the smartest move. Yeah. The only, you know, the funniest thing about the difference between hostage negotiation and business negotiations Hostage negotiations tend to be calmer. Now, give that some thought. Interesting. How, could a, how could a conversation with a terrorist or bank robber be calmer? We didn't know it at the time, but the just the fact of using a calming, soothing voice actually has a neuroscience impact on the other person, calms them down, makes it easier for them to listen to reason. 
how long is a typical hostage negotiation? I mean, I imagine that would go on for hours and, and maybe sometimes days. How does that work? Remember, you don't get in life what's fair. You get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. Yeah, each one has a profile. When you start learning the business, you know, there's uh, uh, spontaneous, unplanned, has a tendency to run from anywhere from two to six hours. Bad guy taking hostages for leverage in a place that's not his or her house. If they're by themselves, going to run about 12, no more than 24 hours. We call that uh, planned, um, a planned hostage taking, but at a known location. And so now, what happens? They, they just get tired and, and so it never goes on for longer than 24 hours because then they'd have to go to sleep? Or that, That's exactly it. And that's why the vast majority of them last less than 12 hours. Like if, it, if, it, if a bad guy had taken a hostage by himself in an office building, commercial site, any place away from home, you don't have the ability, the mental energy to keep it up for, for much past 12 hours. You're not in your house. So you don't know where to get something to eat. You can't take a nap. You don't know where to go to the bathroom. Actually, a lot of real practical considerations. A bad guy trapped in his house on a confrontation that he's been planning for for a while. And yes, I am using a male personal pronoun. Hostage takers, almost exclusively men. In a defensive location, prepared for. Guy doesn't know when it's going to happen, but figures it's going to happen sometime. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more extended duration, even even maybe the long siege that could last, depending upon whether or not he's by himself, it could last weeks if he's not by himself. So mm. there are a lot of interesting but really understandable physical dynamics surrounding the event that can let you predict pretty much how long it's going to last. Chris, I mentioned in your intro that you worked on more than 150 hostage cases. Yeah. That's a lot of cases, but I imagine there are some that you remember more vividly than others. Tell us about a case that stands out for you, one that either profoundly impacted you or maybe caused you to think differently about the world because of the circumstances. Well, a lot of them, uh, a whole variety of them impacted me profoundly. One of the first ones, the one that was a real turning point happened in my career very early on, Chase Manhattan Bank, uh, robbery with hostages. And, you know, you mentioned TV before, you know, hostage situations in banks on TV and in movies happens all the time. In point of fact, in reality, it's extremely rare. The one I worked in New York City, which is one of the busier places, as one might imagine, a bank robbery with hostages hadn't happened there in over 20 years. Bad guys know the good guys are on the way. They tend not to want to get caught inside the bank. And we expected uh, the people in the bank to be in crisis. The lead bank robber, the guy who orchestrated the entire event, he actually was extremely calm, exhibited many of the characteristics of a great business negotiator. What would those be, you might ask yourself? Well, a good business negotiator, especially like the CEO of a company, is going to say, you know, I got a board I got to answer to. I got people I got to answer to. Anytime you are talking to someone who's intentionally diminishing their importance in the negotiation, they are the most influential person on their side. 
They want to talk to you directly because they want to know firsthand what's going on, but they don't want to be backed into a corner to make a decision. This first bank robber at the Chase Bank, he kept saying, like, you know, there's seven guys with me, and these guys are dangerous. They're from all over the world, and I'm scared of them. Like, I don't know what they're going to do to me. We initially took all that at face value. I, I come to learn afterwards that this is a great tactic of uh, business negotiators blaming a guy that's not in the room. There weren't seven people in the Chase Bank. He was not afraid of all of them. He was not in fear of his life from them in any way, shape, or form. But he knew if he kept acting like he was scared of those guys in a bank with him, we'd have trouble pinning him down, which in fact was the case. And when we finally realized that, we changed our strategy and tactics that ultimately led to the peaceful surrender of everybody on the inside. And so what happened that caused you to know that the story that he was telling you or wasn't the actual reality? Subscribe to the Black Swan Group's negotiation newsletter, which is free. It doesn't cost you anything. I had a colleague of the FBI that used to like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. Here's how you subscribe to The Edge if you're in the United States. Send the text to, the number is 33777, that's 33777. The text message that you send is Black Swan Method, Black Swan Method 233777. Comes to your email inbox on Tuesday mornings when you're ready to rock and roll and get after the week. Well, we didn't know for sure right away. I was the, the, uh, the second negotiator on the phone. I was coaching the first negotiator. The NYPD commander was running the Negotiation Operations Center, a guy named Hugh McGowan, brilliantly talented guy. And he'd sat and he'd listened to this for about five hours and finally looked at me and he said, you know, we're going to switch. We're going to put you on the phone. He gave me several pieces of guidance that were very counterintuitive outside of the normal strategies. But he'd listened to it long enough that his gut instinct was telling him there was something different here. By that point in time also, the first guy who wouldn't give us his name, we'd identified him. And he said, you know what? I want you to brace him with his name. First chance you get. The other thing I want you to do is you make sure you end every call. Because this guy kept saying to us, you know, I got to go right now. These guys are coming. And he'd hang up. Or he'd say, look, uh, these guys are standing right here. I'm going to put you on speaker. And he wouldn't talk to us anymore. And Hugh said, you know, you start controlling the end of these calls. We're going to get the upper hand back here. So in an in a, in assertive but not aggressive manner, you know, not argumentative, I implemented what he told me to do. Lo and behold, the bank robber, not to be outfoxed, puts his buddy on the phone. We switched, so he switched. Now, his buddy didn't want to be in the bank. And his buddy was looking for a way out. And when he put his buddy on the phone, you know, my late night FM DJ voice, calming, soothing voice. We figured out collectively within about an hour that this guy really wanted to get out of there and he was worried about getting out of there alive. And about an hour and a half into the negotiation, he was surrendering to me outside the bank. It's interesting. You've talked about calm and being calm and, and how calm hostage negotiation is compared to business negotiation. And as you're explaining this situation in the bank, my palms are sweating and it's really anything but calm, even just listening to it. I can't imagine the anxiety and the adrenaline rush I would think that occurs in the midst of an intense negotiation. Maybe it's just for the uh, from the standpoint 
standpoint of the bad guys, the people you're negotiating with. But al although it should be less intense, um, I, I'm thinking about people negotiating in everyday life. And it's really, it's the same way. It isn't, Chris, people don't um, right. typically um, attribute negotiation to um, a calm experience or right. um, the, right. the late night DJ voice. They right. don't want to get into it at all. I mean, it's kind of like public speaking, right? It's one of those big fears, whether it's negotiating for a high salary in their job or especially dickering with somebody um, like negotiating, uh, say, the price of a car. Right. It seems like a lot of people would rather have a root canal than yeah. you know, than enter into those kinds of negotiations. Now, I understand the importance of negotiating in a hostage situation. Obviously, somebody's life is on the line um, oftentimes, and, and so that's extremely important. But why is it important to for everyone to get over their aversion of negotiating so that we can become more effective negotiators? Well, to get into really success, performance, success thinking, you got to be collaborative. Now, what am I talking about? Most people start their career, start to achieve some success by being competitive or even cutthroat in negotiation. And as soon as you get competitive, if you didn't have any structure to what you were doing, if you didn't have a methodology, if you didn't learn anything, you probably weren't doing very well. And you get competitive, you get cutthroat, you start thinking win-lose. You score a couple of pretty good negotiations. And it's addictive. You like that. It's like pulling a slot machine arm and having the thing uh, hit the jackpot and have the slots ring and go off and and give you, a, you know, quarters, dimes, whatever you're playing. It's an exciting experience. And the excitement of those occasional wins causes people to lose track of the fact that uh, the casinos, and I live in Las Vegas, but I've always thought of, of Las Vegas gambling as a great metaphor for life. The casinos let you win. They got to let you win one in every 84 polls to keep you going because the thrill of success is so big, you forget that you lost 83 times. So competitive negotiation goes from maybe a zero win, weight, win rate to maybe a 10% win rate. And you think that's great and it's exciting. The problem is getting to collaborative negotiations is counter to that in spirit and ultimately far more profitable. You start making deals with people. You start making deals that both sides love. Therefore, both sides want to deal with each other again. You get a velocity of deals. And so then not only is the deal probably better for you because you discovered something special you didn't know, but the other side wants to be repeat negotiation customer. They want to do it with you again, and that's how you build relationships with people you can trust over the long run. So what's a successful negotiation then? One where both parties, let's say just an example, there are two parties, one where both parties walk away feeling like they're the ones who have won? or Well, how they feel walking away is very important. Now, they don't necessarily feel like they've won. They need to feel like, number one, they got hurt. Um, everybody is much happier with whatever the outcome is 
if they feel they were heard and they were involved in a process. A lot of people will actually take your deal exactly as proposed as long as they get to have their say first and they're sure that you heard them. So they need to feel like they got heard out. And then they need to feel like they were treated fairly. And then the real bonus is, did you discover something in the deal that you didn't know would be there in the first place, which might have made the deal better for you? One of the one of our clients provides um, um, objects, materials, goods, and services to some of the biggest names on earth, Home Depot, uh, some of the big stores that are famous for really negotiating really hard on price. This guy in supplying them started to talk to them about things other than price that made his products more valuable to them and actually got substantial increases in his pricing when he learned how to deliver it in a way that worked for them better and actually worked for him at the same time. So both sides feel better off, and my client is making a lot more money, and the people that he supplies are much happier with them because he delivers it into, uh, in a way that's really tailored for them.